Well, welcome to Sunday morning service here at First Baptist Church. I'd like to say welcome uh, to all those that are clicking into this. This will be the last time we just simply meet uh, via live stream. Uh, starting next week, as some of you heard, we will be meeting at the church uh, in the church parking lot. There will be uh, different uh, directions emailed out. There will also be uh, people in the parking lot to give direction. You will also be able to pick up uh, at a table as you drive in uh, notes and things for the service, along with words for us to sing together. And so it'll be much like a regular service, but be in the parking lot. It'll be similar to our live stream. Those of you that are worried about whether you will miss this, don't worry. We will still be live streaming from the parking lot, and we'll be testing out that uh, this Wednesday as well. And so it'll be um, uh, try to work out the kinks as much as possible. Well, uh, many of you also have heard by this time that President Trump has finally uh, signed an order saying that uh, the church is essential and to go forward with moving uh, to meet immediately as a church. And so I know I've heard from some of you already saying, yay, let's go right away. Um, others are like, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, the idea here is that we will move forward slowly, just like as we uh, began to slowly move to a live streaming service, we will slowly move back uh, to a service at the church. Uh, again, things will not be completely normal until the beginning of what would be a normal school year in September. So you just keep watching for instructions and we will slowly be moving back uh, to a service. Along with that will be our, uh, our resurrection service that we will be doing along with a picnic and uh, we will celebrate and rejoice and worship the Lord together for his blessings and provision in our life during this time. Uh, this morning we get to start a new uh, theme for the summer and that is the gospel in the Psalms, or the gospel of the Psalms. And we're going to start with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a very unique psalm, as it is kind of the century. It's the guarding, uh, it guards the entrance to the gate of the book of the psalm. Now remember, the psalms is a writing, a gathering of writings, much like a hymnal, about worshiping God, how to worship God, who God is, who we are in light of God. And so Psalm 1 is, serves as a very important psalm. I also want us to look at the gospel in a very profound way from an Old Testament perspective. And I hope that you see how simplistic the gospel truly is and that it would help us to remember remind us that in our own perspective, we tend to make things harder than it needs to be. But in God's perspective, things are fairly simple if we look to the author and finisher of our faith. And so we are going to look at Psalm 1 this morning. And by the way, remind, uh, forgot already to say happy Memorial Weekend 
And I trust that the video that we saw early encouraged you to remember and to be grateful for those that have given their lives for our freedom so we can be doing what we are doing right now and return to a regular service of gathering together and worshiping the Lord uh, in a very vocal way. Well, let's turn to Psalm 1 this morning. And as we begin Psalm 1, St. Jerome, uh, old father of the faith, often said that the psalm, this psalm, is the Holy Spirit's preference to the whole psalms itself. James Montgomery Boyce taught that the Psalm 1 is the gateway to all of the other psalms. In fact, he argued that this psalm uh, should be used to exposit all the other psalms in this wonderful collection of God's Word. So even though this text before us is short, it is profound. God reveals some very practical, essential truths about how to live in a manner that pleases God uh, and helps us to know how we ought to live before him. So let's read Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. For the Lord knows the, the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So before us in this text, we see two distinct kinds of people, two worldviews, two descriptions, and we see two different destinies. So let's begin this wonderful text by looking at the two distinct kinds of people. In God's mind, there are always just two kinds of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. Notice in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but, so there's a difference, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you see here two only two types of people. The psalmist writes, and the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and show us what uh, the distinctions are. So the righteous and the wicked. Now, I realize that it may bother some of you to put people into these two types of categories. I'm trying to switch uh, uh, here, and it's not working, but we'll get there. There we go. So there's these two types of categories, and we're going to see God gives us this picture of these two ways and these two distinctions. And even though there, uh, that may be hard for some of us to stereotype people, I want you to think of these unique individuals that God describes. And it's not the way the world thinks or the way that we should think, but it's the way that God thinks. 
Ultimately, we will all stand before God and only these two types of people will exist. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have. All that matters is what God sees. It's whether or not we are righteous or wicked. This is a problem with many believers um, in our lives. We struggle in our hearts with the wickedness that is around us. We still find ourselves many times, just like the wicked, doing those things that we know that we shouldn't do. And we, and we want to do the right thing, but we see ourselves doing the things we don't want to do. We desire to do good, but yet we still struggle with sin. Until we see Jesus face to face, sin is still going to be with us. Let's be honest. That honest person can seriously think of himself as truly righteous. We can't. We can't see ourselves as righteous. Because we realize that God is different. So, if the wicked are sinners and the righteous are also sinners, what's the difference between the two? Why, what distinction is there? Well, the difference must be extremely profound if in verse 6 that we see at the end here that the wicked will perish, but the righteous will stand. They'll stand with God. So what is that difference? What is that distinction? Well, if we had time, we would look at Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, in verses 1 through 2, and, and uh, verses 6 and verses 10, it gives us some clarity. We won't take the time to go there. But it says in verse 1, it, it uses the same word blessed. And in verse 10, it uses the same word wicked. So it's talking about the same context that we see here in Psalm 1 says in, in, uh, in verse 1 of Psalm 32 that the blessed are those whom the Lord does not account their iniquity. They are the ones that have been forgiven. In verse 6, it uses the term godly. The godly are those who, rather than delighting in their sins, seek the forgiveness of God for their sin. We might call them godly sinners. So they're still sinners, but they're godly and what makes them godly is the forgiveness of their sin. And the fact that God doesn't count their sin against them anymore. Wow, that's a big difference between those who are found right in God and those who are wicked. Or, and in verse 11 it says, The wicked are filled with sorrow while the righteous are glad and they shout with joy. So who are the blessed in Psalm 1? They are the people of God who are not perfect. They still sin, but they hate their sin. They confess their sin and they are forgiven. What I want you to see here is that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've been saved, if he saves you, the promise of Psalm 1 is for you. You are among those who are blessed or counted as righteous. Blessed in Psalm 1 literally means to be completely happy. Jesus picks up on that exact same language in Matthew chapter 5. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, when he preaches his very first sermon, which begins with the eight statements of blessing. Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth, etc., etc. Did you realize that this first sermon that 
Jesus preaches is not just a bunch of good things that he says. It's about the gospel. To be one of God's people by grace through faith, it is to be one of those who are uniquely blessed by God. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a special object of God's blessing. Upon you he pours out grace upon grace. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You get that? The unbeliever, however, does not know this spiritual blessing of God. Rather, he is under God's curse. The ungodly man may be someone who goes to church. They don't necessarily have to be just a wicked person who commits a lot of crime. They may go to church uh, week after week. He often is a very respectful person. He could be a good neighbor. He may be a kind to the poor and faithful to his employer. His great sin, however, is that he gives God no part in his life. He simply lives as seems best to him without any consideration of God who created him. This is what it means to be ungodly. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked, in Psalm 1, this is in your notes, and, th and throughout all the Psalms, is that the wicked love their sin. They simply love where they're at. They focus on themselves, while the righteous hate their sin. They confess their sin, which is evidence in that they have already been forgiven of their sin. And so we see the psalmist developing this two contrasting people, two distinct kind of people. But notice also, he doesn't just speak to these two distinct people, but he focuses on their two different world views. That's point number two. Notice the author describes this distinction in verse one, and he goes on in verse two to describe it, these two different world views. And it's talking about this, when he says, walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. And he's describing the difference between what the blessed man is and what the wicked man is. There's the two different ways of thinking because of who they are. The word walk means to go with the flow. The world is forever giving counsel that is contrary to God's word. And the world is always in... Satan is always wanting the righteous one to go with the flow, and he wants uh, Satan wants people to go with the flow of the world, go with his flow. If it seems right to you, then it must be right. That's why we live in a very relativistic society. Everything is relative. If it seems right, it must be good. But we know in God's word, it says, if it whatever seems right unto man. It ends in destruction. It's not about what seems right to man. It's about what is, is right with God. But the righteous man doesn't go along with that counsel, no matter how many others follow it. Many times we see in churches today and people in church say, well, look at all the people. They say that this is right. It must be right. We must do it. But that's not so. We must check with God, walk with God. Not only 
that he used the word walk, but he says, or stand in the way of the sinners. To stand means to remain among them or present oneself in service to them. He goes on to say that if we stand with the wicked or in the, in the sinners with them, then we present ourselves in service to believe what they believe. Or he uses the word to sit. So we see a progression. Walk, stand, sit. To sit means to dwell with them. It is to take your seat in the assembly of like-minded people. By the way, this is the same kind of concept when it talks about the church in the Greek New Testament. The, we gather together. That's what the word church means. The assembling of the body. To assemble. We assemble with like-minded people who are worshiping God. That's the idea of this word. To sit means to dwell with or to assemble together with like-minded believers. That's why it ends with scoffers. They sit in the seat of the scoffers, those who mock or ridicule the things of God. There seems to be a very dangerous progression at work here. If you begin accepting some of the counsel of the wicked, it won't be long till you find yourself standing in the path with the wicked. So it shouldn't be of any surprise that sometime later when you wake up and you realize that for some time you've actually taken your seat and you've begun feeling quite at home with those who scoff at the very teaching of God's Word. So, what we see here is two distinct worldviews, and that is the worldview of the wicked sinner and the scoffer interprets his or her world not through the lens of God's Word, but through the lens of their own sinful desires. Everything is about their desire. It has nothing to do with who God should be of no surprise when we see the things going on around us in the world. But that's not true of the blessed or the righteous man. Notice in verse 2, but, there's a contrast here, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Right? The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The word law here means Torah. In the Hebrew it's Torah, which means literally the teaching. So it's referring to the teaching that comes from God. Referring to all of God's teaching and revealing himself to us through his word. The blessed man meditates on this teaching day and night. To meditate, the word meditate means to ponder or think deeply about something. Charles Spurgeon distinguishes between reading God's word and meditating on God's word this way when he wrote, Reading reaps the wheat. It's like going into a field and cutting down the wheat. And then he writes, Meditation then is taking that wheat, threshing it, grinding it, and then making it into sumptuous smelling and beautiful bread that makes your mouth water. Reading it, he goes on to say, is like ox feeding. Whereas meditation is not only feeding on something, but it's digesting it and chewing it over and over and over again until it goes down and it stays down and we gather the nutrients to energize our life. It's very good for the soul. That's why many have translated the word meditation as like a cow that's chewing its cud. You know, a cow has several 
stomach so it, it chews and it regurgitates and chews again and chews again and chews again until it gains every ounce of energy and vitamins from the food it eats. That's the way the righteous man views the world. The righteous man, in fact, did you know that literally the Hebrew word here for meditate means to moan. It, it was giving the description of a person that eats something that they really, really enjoy and they moan. Basically, the idea is like, you take a succulent bite of whatever your favorite meal is, and you take that food, you put it in your mouth, and you almost just suck on it, and you go, mmm, and you just, ah, it's so good, and you just let it melt in your mouth, and you savor every ounce of flavor, and you take it all in. The righteous man says, mmm, it's an expression of delight in the weightiness and the impactfulness and the energy that the scripture gives this righteous man. In this sense, the righteous man can often say with David, just like in Psalm 119, when David says, Oh, how I love thy law, O God. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If you've never tried the honey, uh, that um, uh, Melanie Hively gets from the hives that she keeps. It is amazing. I mean, fresh honey is it's just mm, it's so sweet to, the, to my mouth. It's wonderful. That's what God is describing here. The worldview of this blessed, righteous man interprets his whole world through the lens of Scripture because it's the, that way is, gives him energy um, it gives him his nourishment, and it's the sweetness that he desires. It basically gives sugar to every single thing in his life. It's that which sugars the circumstance. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever had that cereal with, if it just had a little bit of sugar, it would taste better? For me, that's just about every kind of cereal known to man. I remember the first time I tried to eat oatmeal. I think I had just as much brown sugar in that oatmeal as, as I did oatmeal to get it down. But that's the way God's word is for our life. It's sweet morsels of honey. It's sweet. It sweetens all of our circumstance. So it, it means if you look at these two different worldviews of the wicked and the righteous, they're completely different appetites, completely different desires. One based everything solely on emotion and desire, and the other one based everything on God's word, which reveals who God is and gives them the energy to live his life in the Lord. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked is the difference between two worldviews. The psalmist describes three, uh, thirdly, two contrasting descriptions. So he gives us two descriptions of the wicked and the righteous. The first description found in verse 3 is beautiful. It's healthy. It's fruit-bearing tree. This is what the blessed and righteous man would be like. The word for planted here in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water. The word planted means transplanted. It's where we get the word transplant. 
In fact, it's a picture of this farmer seeing a dead tree, taking it and scooping it out of the dead and dry and airy ground, and then taking it and now planting it in fruitful soil. So it means that we are were like a tree that was dead, but now is transplanted and growing. That's what it means. God uproots the righteous man from the dry, parched, lifeless ground where he's been living and transplants him into a totally new place. That brings us to the other word that he describes, and that is streams of living water. The word for stream means actually artificial canals, water courses or canals. It's actually the picture of a farmer uh, taking a, a dry fruit tree and transplanting them in fertile ground between two water sources or water channels to make it abundantly, um, uh, to be able to supply the exact nutrients and life-giving water that the fruit tree needs. It's like what we see when we see those uh, the farmer digging a channel to bring water in to, to his crops. That life-giving water. That's what God does. That's what a righteous one is like, a tree that's been transplanted and set between a water source. And of course, we know from other scripture that that water source is the Holy Spirit. It's everything we need to grow in our life. And it works. Every tree that God plants bears fruit. Why? Because it has the very life-giving source of the Spirit of God that reaches its roots and its branches. That's what it says in John 15. Without God, we can do nothing. We can't grow. We need to be connected to the life giver, to God. By the way, what kind of fruit does a this tree bear? Well, all kinds of godliness. It bears the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22 It also bears humility, honesty, purity, integrity, truthfulness, worship, generosity, perseverance, compassion, sacrificial service, real love. This is what meditation on God's Word will do to you. It will change you. It will make you more like Jesus. No wonder the psalmist concludes, in all that he does, it prospers. You know, this sounds very much like another passage that we see in Joshua 1, verses 8 through 9. This is the same promise that, that God gave Joshua when he was going into the promised land. Look at what it says. It says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Sound familiar? So that you'll be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, because he's transplanted you right where he wants you. Just like he transplanted Israel and put him right where he wanted. Those who meditate on God's word are men and women who are essentially blessed of the Lord. That does not mean that God will make you rich and guarantee that promotion. It's not like the prosperity gospel that we see a lot of preachers preaching. But it does mean 
that you will be successful in everything that God wants you to do. Wherever God has planted you as his tree by streams of living water, you will be able to be successful in battling temptation. You'll be successful in battling a stubborn habit. You'll be able to be successful in finding a way to give to the needs of others. You'll be successful uh, in offering will, real wisdom to the one who needs counsel. You'll be able to be successful sharing the gospel with that lost friend or relative. You'll be successful in loving your spouse as Christ loves the church. And whatever you do, you'll be able to prosper wherever God plants you according to his purpose. The wicked are not so, it says in verse 4. See the contrast in this distinction in how he describes the, the righteous and the unrighteous. It says in verse 4, the wicked are not so, or in the Hebrew, uh, it says, not so are the wicked, which means literally they're not transplanted. So here is a two big distinction between two types of people, the wicked and the unrighteous, the transplanted ones who bear fruit, and then the ones are, who are not transplanted, who are in the desolate, dry, airy, dead soil of the world. And he describes them this way. Look at verse 4. He says, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is this. Chaff is the part of the wheat plant that is, is good for nothing. It is the rootless, uh, weightless, worthless husk of a plant. It, does, it doesn't take much uh, to <laughs> despise it. It simply gets carried away by the wind to no place in particular. It's not good for anything. In fact, the chaff, uh, it's not even good to use for, uh, it has no nutrients. You can't use it to make good soil. You know, in our, uh, as I, we work on our farm, we put manure, we put other uh, plants and stuff, and, and we make uh, uh, compost. And so that way we can get some good soil and use for the garden and use for growing things. And we use it for good things, right? But chaff is not good for anything. It simply gets carried away. It gets deposited nowhere. The important thing to see here is that in the eyes of God, the righteous bears fruit for God because it's healthy and strong because of what God did. The godless, however, are useless to God. The contrast can't be any more stark than that. So this is what we've seen so far in this psalm. Two distinct kinds of people, two types of worldview, two contrasting descriptions, and now lastly we see two different destinies. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In the final judgment, the wicked will not stand. Will not stand means this. They will not be pronounced, or it, it means literally that they will be pronounced guilty and sentenced. The picture here is that of a lawbreaker coming before a righteous judge where a final legal decision will be made and his case will be settled. On that day, the wicked will not stand. They will be thrown aside, right? They will be burnt up. They will not be numbered among the congregation of the righteous. 
whose sins have been forgiven. That rather, they are going to be pronounced guilty and sentenced. By the way, in contrast, in verse 6, for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. The word to know here in the Hebrew means God's intimate knowledge of someone. It doesn't mean to know about. It means to have an intimate knowledge. To be cared for gives the same idea of a tree that's been planted and cared for and tended by the master and, and loved. This is an intimate relationship. We are the known. The righteous are the known ones. The known ones are the ones who are cared for and are tended, that bear fruit, that are blessed, that are completely happy. Quite a different contrast in our text. Have we unpacked all these different aspects of this text? In conclusion, I want to share just briefly a couple things. And that, that is this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who have been forgiven of their sins, who love God and delight in his word day and night, and those who delight in their own sin, the wicked, that pretend that God is not there and despise God's word. Two completely different people. Two completely different worldviews. Two contrasting descriptions. Two different destinies. The real question is, is where are you? Are you, have you been transplanted by God into a relationship with him? In a fertile ground where God is growing you, sanctifying you, and making you into his image. That brings another question, even though you've been transplanted, have you been longing or focusing on the wrong image? Have you been looking at this dry and desolate ground in which you used to live and long for something that is not true? Or are you gazing and realizing what you have in the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your your Savior? Here's another question. Maybe you haven't been transplanted. Maybe you are still dying on the vine over here in the worthless soil. The good news, however, is that if you find yourself in the company of the wicked this morning, and if it frightens you and it breaks your heart, heart, God is willing to pull your life up by the roots and transplant you into a brand new kind of life, a life that he has created for you. You can become like a tree firmly planted by the streams, by the life-giving water, which will be able to allow you to yield fruit in due season. And it does not wither. You will never wither. You know the idea behind this? You know the difference between like an evergreen tree and just a deciduous tree? A tree where the leaves fall? If you know that, you know, if you look at a cedar tree or a Douglas fir, fir trees, pine trees, their leaves never fall. They're, they're still there. They're green all year round. Unless it dies. But that's the idea here, that it continues to produce green fruit all year round, all your life. You can be like that. But you must come to Jesus on his term. You must come to God on his term. That's the gospel. Here is revealed the very harsh and stark reality that there are only two types of people in this world. 
Don't listen to the world. There are only two types of humans. Those that one day will stand before God and live with Him for eternity and those that will not stand before God and be thrown into hell. God doesn't make all those outward distinctions like the world does between the haves and the haves not. God doesn't focus on your position, your power, your authority. Only God sees His authority. And He is the only good in this world. He is holy. He is just. By faith, you must be willing to admit that you have to offer Him your sins to seek forgiveness. Ask Him to forgive your unbelief and sin and let Him change your heart in such a way that it will cause you to love Him and desire Him. There are only two ways to live in this world. There are only two final destinies. The counsel of Jesus Christ to you is this, and it's found in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 13 through 14. And when Jesus said, and he looked at everybody that needed a Savior, and he said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Which one are you? Are you the one that has entered by the narrow gate? The gate that is Christ? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the gate. He is the Redeemer who is the go-between. You see, Psalm 1 is the gatekeeper to all the other psalms. It explains the need for a Savior, which we will see in chapter 2. Where are you in your life? Are you the blessed, or do you find yourself with the wicked this morning? As God has described the two distinct people, where do you find yourself? Don't wait to be found in the righteous. Call upon the Lord and be saved this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 1 and the distinctions that are made there. I pray that it will become the foundation as we look at the gospel or the good news of what you have done for us. Lord, it's all your work. You are the one who transplants lives. You take us out of the dead world and you put us into life. Life eternal. You are the life. And so, Lord, the, the Satan is the one who steals, kills, and destroys. Lord, help us to be found, to be the blessed ones. Thank you for many of us who can claim that promise that we are the truly happy ones. May we meditate and be found meditating on your word day and night, that it might produce and bear fruit in our life because of the life-giving blood in which you have given us given us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for making us alive in you. I pray that you will use your spirit to teach us this week continually about your word. In Jesus' name we